Welcome to Backstage the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is renowned percussionist, accomplished music educator, imaginative product innovator, and successful entrepreneur, Neil Grover. He's performed with the Boston Symphony, is on the soundtrack for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and has even performed with the band Aerosmith. In today's episode, we talk about some performance highlights in his career, the similarities between running a business and being a musician, and some great advice for young people going into the arts. I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Hey, Neil. Hi, Sean. You may hear a little bit of drumming in the background, but it's the end of the month. It's it's busy production in there. They're building a lot of snare drums today. Perfect. That's good. That's good news. Before we uh, called this conference member, we were talking about, you said you checked out my website, and you said you had a... Yeah, there's some interesting interesting connections. So I noticed on your website, I listened to the podcast with Gordon Goodwin. Mm -hmm. Now, Gordon and I crossed paths, man, in the early 80s when he was the music director for Johnny Mathis. And I played Mm -hmm. a number of gigs with him and really uh, got to notice what a great musician he is. But when I was listening to the podcast, I I heard him telling a story about working with the Boston Pops and John Williams um, and him being inspired by John. And I I was on that particular gig, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Wow. That's uh, awesome. And um, it's kind of circular because, I mean, I'm actually playing tomorrow night with John, a concert here in Boston. And, and it, it's, you know, it, it's it's interesting how people inspire others and and uh, uh, kind of the circ- circular nature of things, kind of like the circle of fifths. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm a huge fan of Gordon's. He's incredible. Work. Oh, and he's such a great guy, too. Besides yeah, yeah. just musically. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm, a ter- I'm I'm jealous of you already because I know you've worked with John Williams before, and you just said you're working with him tomorrow. So yeah, I'm eternally yeah. jealous of that. He's yeah, he's an unbelievable. I mean, everybody knows what a great composer he is, but he's a, he's a terrific person and really down to earth, mm-hmm. and um, you know, not egocentric at all, and and really, really cerebral, and and really, really a great guy. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I met him last year for about five minutes, and right. the whole time I couldn't believe I was talking to him, and he gave me yeah. time. I'm like, this guy is the best. No, no, yeah, and he, and he writes some really hard percussion parts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially <laughs> the mallet stuff. It's like, oh my yeah, God. that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that's yeah. something that just don't lie very well, but they sound great. <laughs> yeah. Well, All right. Thanks, so- thanks for thinking of me for a podcast. Yeah, you know, it was a it was a natural fit based on what I'm doing. So um, I start all the podcasts with the same question, and I ask the uh, the subject, um, "What's your earliest memory of music? When music impacted you?" That, that's really easy for me. My earliest, my father's a musician, and we had two pianos in the house. I had no furniture, but two pianos, and actually a payphone in the house. But that's another story. <laughs> And um, my dad would be playing all the time, played sax, clarinet, flute, piano. Uh, Unfortunately, he was a pretty good drummer, which used to frustrate me. But um, (laughs) I just remember him playing, and then he played recordings constantly on what was called in those days a hi-fi, Harmon Carton Mm -hmm. hi-fi, you know, mono, it was before stereo. And um, he had a lot of records of Tito Puente, Lena Horne. He liked a lot of Latin uh, salsa. And so I remember there was always music 
in my home going on always. In fact, there were times my brother and I, maybe I was seven, my brother was five, we'd share a bedroom, we'd be needing to go to sleep because we had school the next morning, and my dad would be having a jam session in the living room, <laughs> and we couldn't <laughs> sleep because it was kind of loud. So it was, it was a little different than a lot of people's upbringings, but I was very, very lucky to be born into a, a family where music was central. After that, I mean, there were was, there was some highlights I remember. Of course, like everyone else of my generation, I remember the Beatles and Ed Sullivan and that really being an incredible eye-opener. You know, I remember seeing Buddy Rich for the first time. That was a big one. I remember hearing uh, The Rite of Spring for the first time. And these kind of moments which, where I said, wow, this, what is this? You know, uh, but But I don't remember a time where... It, I wasn't hearing music. Okay. And were you drawn to um, drums first, or uh, it sounds like you might have been, or was it melodic percussion or both? Well, uh, I think my recollection is we I took piano lessons early, and I hated it. I didn't like hmm. practicing, and it wasn't for me. And uh, then I picked the drums. Uh, my mom was not thrilled about that. But I was lucky to start drums at nine-year-old with a fantastic teacher who taught people like Dom Famularo, who's we're about the same age, and other really uh, great drummers. And I, I just it just fit me really, really well. So I was really I didn't play any melodic percussion until high school. Um, wow. Although I always played piano by ear, I was mm-hmm. always able to sit down at the piano and play a little bit, play blues, play some jazz stuff. Uh, and I think that's just from listening to my dad and watching what he did. And it wasn't from mm-hmm. any formal training at all. Now, did you play percussion in school, middle school, high school, marching band, jazz band, all that stuff? Yes. Yeah, I was a drum major yeah. in high school. Um, in my high school, I started a percussion ensemble. This was in the early 70s, and it was still fairly a new thing. And I, I, used, I grew up outside New York City, and I used to go into Manhattan School of Music uh, on the weekends to go to their prep division. And Paul Price was the percussion teacher there. And Paul was really the father of the percussion ensemble. And they had a great ensemble. He used to do John Cage and stuff. And it really, uh, Lou Harrison, really turned me on. So I, I started one in my high school and played in the orchestra. And marching band was probably my least favorite. Um, mm-hmm. It was, it was, uh, but I, I, I played snare drum, and then I became the drum major. I, I was a terrible drum major, though. So. <laughs> Why do you say that? What was terrible about your drum major skills? Um, I, I would intentionally take very fast tempos to try and mess things up. <laughs> Especially we had we had in those days we had these these young girls called twirlers, and they would twirl batons. I don't know baton twirlers, and. And I would take Tempe that I kind of really messed with them, and and it was kind of this ongoing gag in the band, and I I didn't take it that seriously. I mean, I was much more serious about being inside playing, but but I mean, I didn't mess it up that bad. We we just played around. Yeah, with just had fun. Yeah, had a little yeah. fun with. The same they didn't have YouTube. I would love to have seen that. Oh, I'd be I'd be in serious trouble. <laughs> True. <laughs> Is there a gig, like a pivotal gig for you, like looking back on your career that like, man, that gig kind of changed my career or propelled me forward to, to end up with as a professional musician? Yes. Um, <clears throat> when I was 14, um, for the summer, 
my mom had some way read about this youth wind ensemble that was going to tour Europe, and they were holding auditions. And uh, she thought it would be a good experience for me. Now, when I was 14, I was a, I was a drum set player. I didn't even know how to hold a triangle. Um, <laughs> so she took me, and I, but I always played really good snare drum because I, I've, I always had pretty good chops, and I love playing snare drum, and I play these competitive kinds of solos. And so I played for the director, and he loved my snare drum playing, but I didn't know anything else. He took me anyway. Uh, I was kind of young to go. Most of the other kids were 16, 17, 18. He figured the, the percussion section would kind of teach me. And we toured Europe playing uh, wind ensemble literature, Persichetti, um, all kinds of really uh, uh, good material, Clifton Williams. And uh. I loved it. And the other percussionists who were a few years older took me under their wing, taught me how to hold a triangle, how to, how to grab cymbals, and what timpani are and how to play. And they, they were wonderful players, all who pretty much became professionals and educators. And that turned me completely away from being wanting to be a drum set player, a jazz drum set player, into really saying, I really want to play in a percussion section. I like playing mallets. I like I like the timp the idea of playing timpani, and so that was pivotal. And then I then I started studying percussion uh, when I got back. Wow, what a fortunate situation you had because a lot of times you know they have three spots, fifty guys try out, and the three best get in someone who's just good at snare around here anyway, it might be tough for that kid to actually have the experience that you had now. Yeah, no, it, 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 it was a gift. And it, what's funny is this summer, the ed, the conductor of that wind ensemble, and I've stayed in touch all these years, and we we met up in New York and spent a few days together. Uh, we've stayed in touch, and I was able to express to him how important that trip was to me, which I think meant a lot to him. Um, and uh, and the other percussionists were great. I'll never forget we're we're on the trip and one of and and on the trip I, I we were listening to music and one of the percussionists played me something by Frank Zappa which was just amazing. And then he played me said you know who Frank Zappa likes is Varez Edgar Varez is his idol. And then he played me Ionization, and I just sat there with my jaw open saying. How in the world do you even write this? And it, it really, really was a like opening a door and light coming on. And actually, actually, I, I really messed up some triangle parts. I didn't know what how to play triangles. It's kind of funny that I ended up kind of making triangles because I had no idea what I was doing back then. <laughs> well, it's like I had a student today, and I said, you know, keep working on the worst worst section of this piece that was your best and I guess that's kind of what happened to you you had the exactly. with the triangle and now your name is synonymous with the world's best triangles which is exactly well I got I, I remember messing something up being really embarrassed thinking mm-hmm. how, it's a triangle how hard can this be and I can't do it <laughs> I don't and it changed you know it, it's um yeah it is kind of ironic in 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 a in a way mm-hmm so you know, anyone who's going to be listening to this uh, has to know something of your career, your performances, your recordings, your in the industry with musical instruments and all that stuff. Here's a question that you might not be able to answer uh, quickly. I don't know. But out of all of your performances, can you narrow down to one or two performances that were meaningful to you? Like when you look yes. back, you're like, okay, great. So what do you what do you have? Yes. I'll give you the one. Okay. It was right after 9-11. I'm playing, in those days I was playing about 20, 25 weeks with the Boston Symphony as extra percussion. And my teacher, Vic, Vic Firth, was a principal timpanist. 
and uh, the orchestra was going to New York to play Carnegie Hall a few days later. Well, they didn't know wow. whether to cancel the concert or what to do. The conductor, Seijo Zawa, who was a phenomenal conductor, decided with the management that they would go and change the program to play the Berlioz Requiem. Hmm. And so we we went. And I was playing one of the timpani parts right next to Vic. Carnegie Hall. After 9-11, we played, and at the end of the piece, it was silence. You heard people weeping. And it was it was it was so emotionally charged. I, I got a huge lump in my throat thinking about oh this is it was just overwhelming, and the fact that I could play next to Vic Firth, who to me you know was like baseball be like standing next to Babe Ruth. I mean, who gets mm-hmm. to do that? I mean, I, I was really lucky, and uh, thankfully I was able to hold my own, although not at Vic's level. Uh, hmm. It was it was it was it was amazing. I, I I think it was a combination of the music playing with the Boston Symphony in Carnegie Hall, which kind of was home turf for me after 9-11. All those things came together like the perfect storm. So if I had to name one, that's it. Wow. I, I got chills just when you told the story. Um, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it, it was... It was more deep than that. It was, it was, it was as, they, as we used to say, it was heavy, man. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really heavy. Wow. There were a lot of other really good performances um, with John Williams oh, touring with the Boston Pops, going to Asia. Going, if I can just tell you about one other one that was really an amazing. I mean, we were on tour with John Williams and across the USA. We used to do these big USA tours in the summers. And we're at a place called Red Rocks in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, Red Rocks is a phenomenal amphitheater, way up high in the mountains, natural rock amphitheater. So we get there, we're playing, and we're playing at that time. Uh, it was not long after the movie The Witches of Eastwick came out. And John wrote the music for that, and it's really a cool score. And um, in it, there's thunder sheets, and we brought two big thunder sheets. I remember I was playing one of them and some cymbals, and it's, it's, it's all this kind of you know spooky kind of music, kind of eerie. And we're playing it, and it just so happened that there was heat lightning all around us. We're up a mile high. And there's this heat lightning lighting up the sky while we're playing the Witches of Eastwick. It, it was like you could not orchestrate that. It was just unbelievable. It was very, wow. very cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, was, was since you mentioned, since you mentioned John Williams, and I love talking about him, I have, I just wrote down two follow-up questions about John Williams mm-hmm. and his music for you. The first one is: Do you have a favorite piece of his to perform that he wrote? Um. I don't know if it's one. I have a couple, and it's going to surprise people because they're not the usual crowd pleasers. Um, he wrote music for an old John Wayne movie called The Cowboys. I oh, love yeah. that score. I love it. That's mm-hmm. one of them. The other is music from a movie um, called Far and Away. Oh, yeah. And it's got some beautiful lyrical stuff. Um you know, so those, in a way, those, those are those are two of my favorites. I mean, we we play the popular stuff all the time, and we're playing a lot of Harry Potter, and now we're playing a lot from the uh, Force Awakens, and of course all the Star Wars stuff. And I was lucky to go on tour with a Star Wars in concert, which was an eleven-week cross North America tour. We played the music from all six movies and the time they were out, and 
with laser lights was kind of like a rock show. So, I mean, it's all fantastic. But I find myself gravitating towards the ones that are not the usual suspects. Did you, um, I, I know that soundtrack, The Far and Away, because the Chieftains are on it. Um, right. Did you, get, did you play with them live with John? We did concerts with them. Um, I think there's a recording. I don't remember. Uh, I think so. But there's a very nice little marimba part. And and the thing about John is people, a lot of people who, particularly those who aren't musicians, think about his Star Wars, you know, it's kind of very regal, fanfare-y stuff. Liberty fanfare is another one I love. You know, he writes these great uh, Olympic marches and things. But he is a lyrical genius on the level of Tchaikovsky. He can write mm-hmm. these long-flowing melodies. Like if you, if in, in Star Wars, if you listen to Princess Leia's theme, it's right. absolutely gorgeous, absolutely magnificent. And so I kind of gravitate toward those lyrical kinds of things, which might sound strange mm-hmm. as being a percussionist. Um, no, I, I get it, yeah. You know, and it's not that I don't enjoy the others. They're fantastic. But for me, it's, it's kind of the gentle, softer... Uh, introspective John Williams, which is, I think, more of what I see as his personality. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's unassuming, and, it, you know, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of opposite of what you'd think for someone who writes that kind of music. Right. Yeah. All right. Here's my, set, my follow-up question to, to the John Williams category here. A friend of mine just gave me some music. He said, you have to check this out. This part is so hard. It's um, the vibraphone part from Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, it's it's brutal. And it's brutal. I'm like, oh, my God. No, is no. there a piece of, of his that you're like, oh, i got to shed that thing before we even go to rehearsal? If they ever asked me, I'd call in sick. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I know of the first time I heard that, I called this friend of mine in L.A., Alan Estes, who's a phenomenal session player. And I, I, I thought he had done it. And I called and said, Alan, did you play this? He said, yeah. And it was just amazing. And then I had heard he hadn't right. had the music much in advance. And that that part is beyond, I think, what I would be comfortable. I'd have to shed it for a month. Oh, um, yeah. You know, it's really a virtuosic vibraphone, jazz vibraphone part. Uh, yeah, killer. It, yeah, yeah, killer. I've never had to play it and cross my fingers. I'll, I'll <laughs> get into my pension and out of there before I have to. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, great. Um, let's see here. What's the next question? Do you still listen to music? All the time. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I suppose the follow-up question is, what do you listen to? Correct. Mm-hmm. Great. I listen to almost exclusively jazz. I mean, my original experiences were with jazz. I love jazz. I love to play with it. I jazz trio I have. Um, you know, I don't sit and listen to Mahler symphonies and Tchaikovsky. I mean, I played played them for years, and I love them. They're fantastic pieces. But I find myself drawn more to Miles and Bebop Gordon Goodwin's band, and 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 I do listen to a lot of um, singers like Sinatra, uh, Diane Reeves, uh, Tony Bennett. Um, I, you know, I I like I like listening to music that is relaxing to me. I find if I'm listening to like a 
an orchestral pops recording or or a Beethoven symphony, I'm listening critically. Even I can't help mm. it. I'm listening, right. and it's, no, they're not together here and this. But when I'm listening to jazz, it's much more freeing to me. And even, and when I play jazz, it's it, it's much more enjoyable and relaxing to me. Um, and and it, it it's hard because I have a lot of friends who are re- not musicians, who doctors, lawyers, or mechanics, and and they always invite me to concerts or orchestra concerts, and I never go. <laughs> and they, yeah. they they they're miffed by that. I said, look, I can't do it. I mean, I I. I I I listen to that. I that's my profession. I play it all the time. I need to relax. I need downtime. So I do listen to a lot cool. of jazz. Yeah. Nice. Now you you mentioned you know the the gravity of playing next to Vic for the nine eleven concert. Right. Um, is there something similar outside of the you know in the pop or jazz world like some artist that you played with and you you had to pinch yourself and go I can't believe I'm playing with this person. That's a good question. I have to think about that for a minute. Um, uh, that's really a that's a tough one. I don't think there is anybody who, on the popular vein, um, that I've had to pinch myself and saying, you know, wow, that's that's Paul McCartney or that's that's so and so. I, you know, I. I I like musical artists. I appreciate the crafts, the craftsmanship, the the talent, the ability. But I never really understood the idolization of musicians or athletes. Mm-hmm. So I never really feel well. I have to go up to that person, and um, you know, I'll tell them how great they are or how much I love them. And, you know, and, and I've always, I just I just can appreciate them for what they do. They're good at what they do. So I never really, it's not like I'm in awe of them. I never really, um, I actually did, I mean, maybe there are, maybe there are two. Mm-hmm. Leonard Bernstein and Aaron Copeland. Mm-hmm. And wow. I'm going back, I'm going way back into the 70s, early 80s. And I got yeah. to play West Side Story with uh, Bernstein conducting and Chuck Four, and it was amazing. And then Copeland, he conducted... Uh, uh, he conducted El Salam Mexico, and it, for me, playing music with the composer present, with the creator, whether it's John or it was Copeland or whether it's somebody else, um, is really, really a great experience because it's create. It, there's a creator, right? So, yeah, that that's for me. It, it was, but it, it, yeah, that that's what I would say. But it really, great. it's very okay. rare. Yeah. Cool. So now, going into some of your uh, the company. With the instruments, uh, the question is, we've talked a lot about your playing, and mm-hmm. everyone knows you make the triangles, tambourines, all the great instruments and accessories. The question is, how do you think these two facets of you, kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde, you're playing music and then you're creating instruments, how do they complement each other in your life? That, that, that's a very good question. They're actually very similar, and uh, I'm going to explain why from my perspective. So as musicians, all of us, we're learning a craft, we're learning. One of the great things about Becoming a musician is discovery. You whether you discover a chord progression or a new rhythm or a voicing, you hear bolero for the first time, you listen to this orchestration, wow, what's that? You know, is this discovery? And I found with business it's the same way. I, there was a point for me where I was I played a lot of literature and a lot of the concerts I were doing were repeats of 
literature I've, I've played, and and it was not as discoverable for me as an experience as it was initially. And it was a little frustrating because hmm. I never really liked just playing something all the time. You know, play certain pieces. You have to. I mean, in December, there's certain, you know, sleigh ride I've played over 1,500 times. Okay, it's a great mm-hmm. piece of music. Yeah, it's good. Okay, I'll play it. But it's not It's not discoverable. There's nothing new about it to me. Um, doing a business, um, I pride myself in I've made every mistake possible and survived. And that, that was that was my MBA. I never really went to business school. But I was discovering things. I figured things out. You know, when, when I first wanted to make a tambourine, well, actually the first thing was a triangle, it's not like I could have gone to the library in those days, which was way well before the Internet, and find a book, Triangle Making. <laughs> Get rich making a triangle. You know, how do you do it? Nothing existed. In fact... The question for me was, initially, it wasn't how to make a triangle, is what the hell should a triangle sound like? Hmm. What is it? What is it? And I asked a lot of people, and everybody kind of started scratching their heads. And it, so it was a discovery for me to kind of think about that and come up with a sound that I thought would be what a triangle should sound like. And um, it's still, I think, a subject for discussion because people have different opinions. So, mm-hmm. so there's, there's similarities. So it, the shifting back and forth was always very natural for me. It never really seemed like I was doing anything different. It seemed like an extension of making music instead of just saying, okay, now I'm putting on a suit and going to the office. I never, you know, first of all, I don't wear a suit, but uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really it interesting because... I'm imagining a Venn diagram of like performing, manufacturing, but you're saying there's more in common than less in common, which is great. Yes, yes, it's another yeah. gig. It's a little different, mm-hmm. you know. It's not a jazz gig, it, you know. But and granted, I had it. It took me a long time to get my business jobs together. Um, I actually did do a little studying and go back, and I had a lot of help and a lot of people who were very kind to me and patient. Uh, well, I found my way, but it, it's it. You know, there's skill sets and skills in terms of problem solving. When you're a musician, you have to, especially percussionists, we're problem solving all the time. You get a new piece. How the hell do I set this up? What goes where? The cowbell's going to the right or the left? You know, we're always being creative. And in business, it's the same way. It's Especially when you, you start your own small business, is, I'm painting a picture. What, is, what should this look like? What color should I use? So it's not as though I was going to a job in a big accounting firm. They say, here's your desk, do these calculations. It was, you walk into a room, there's a desk and a chair. Somebody walks out and closes the door and you say, now what? Besides your business and playing music and listening to music, uh, what do you do if you, in your limited free time? Do you go hiking, biking? Is there anything else that you do? Um, yeah, my wife and I both enjoy hiking. Uh, we had a home in New Hampshire. We were up in the mountains. We used to hike a lot. Um, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of sailing, but I I don't really sail that much anymore. Recently, I, I kind of I find my interests moving around through different stages of my life. And lately, I've become very interested in cars. I, I was not a car guy as a kid. I could care less about cars or was in my 20s or 30s. But as I've gotten older, and um, maybe now because I can actually afford to have a nice car, I, <laughs> I've, I'm interested in cars, and specifically British sports cars. Um, I, I own a vintage MG, and I go to outings and club outings, and, and I like the history. And, and so um, 
it's very relaxing to me. In fact, today's a, a nice fall day here in, in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, when I get home, uh, I'll go out for a, a ride for half an hour along some back roads and farms with the top down. And it's very relaxing to me. Uh, so that's that's primarily, and in the winter I ski. Skiing is kind of something I've always loved. So that's my that's my winter relaxation. In the summer, it's it's taking drives through the countryside. Nice. Um, I have a lot of prospective future musicians that listen to these things, uh, middle school through college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there any one, two, or three things you could offer these? young people for advice going into a career in the arts? Yes. Um, I would say learn as much as you can. It's You're always going to be learning something new from people, sometimes unexpected places. Um, always strive to be the best you can and, and absorb whatever. Listen to a lot of music. I think a lot of musicians don't listen enough. You know, when I ask percussionists in a clinic or something, what's the most important part of our bodies as percussionists? They always say hands, fingers, wrists. And I say, no, 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 ears. we got to hear. Listen, listen. And, you know, it's you just have to be prepared to make sacrifices to um, be in a making the living in an art form that you love. It's 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 not an easy road for most people you're going to have to piece together different pieces of it teaching maybe playing maybe a day job maybe not maybe becoming a music educator but be open i used to tell my percussion students who wanted just to be play timpani i said there are very few timpani openings i said you're better off playing all percussion you have a better shot of making a living. Just be a general mm-hmm. practitioner. Play everything. You could specialize later. If you get a gig in an orchestra and you, it's a timpani gig, then you're a specialist. But until then, don't specialize. Play as many different types of music as you can. And the last thing I think is more of a general thing I'd say to anybody is be nice to people on the way up because they're the same people you're going to meet on the way down. Mm-hmm. That was something my dad so told true. me. So true. Very true. Very true. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and one thing I'd add, too, is w- if you're lucky enough to get hired to, for a gig, be on time, don't make problems, play your part, and leave. You know, Because so much of it is, I know so many good players who are real pains in the neck. You get to a gig, <laughs> and they're, they're making trouble, and they're complaining. They don't want to sit there. And what happens is... My, I see contractors who hire the musicians, regardless of the fact that they're great players, will hire someone who might not play as well, but is easy to work with. We're working on True. a team. We're working on a team. It's like a baseball team. You've got to work with your teammates, and you've got to listen to the coach. Exactly. So, Neil, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast. I hope uh, the listeners gain a lot from this. I know I've learned a lot and had fun talking to you. It's it's a privilege to be part of the Grover Percussion family now. Uh, I use your products on every gig that I need a triangle or tambourine or anything else. So, you know, thank you for your inspiration on the stage and in the manufacturing field. Well, Sean, thank you so much. I'm honored that you would say those nice things about me and, and include me in your terrific podcast. Thanks, Neil. All right. Thank you. Good work. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. For more about Neil Grover and Grover Pro Percussion, please visit the link at the bottom of this podcast. And thanks for listening.